This week, we're going to be looking to Twitter to find out all the different ways that brokers and sellers inflate or overvalue the price of a business being offered for sale. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, uh, as you know, I, I sometimes play around on Twitter, and a couple of weeks ago, I had a, there's my Twitter handle right there, if you're on Twitter, please Please come over and give me a follow. I had a video come out a few weeks ago where I was very critical of a thread that was put up there and it was quite popular and people said, do more of these. So uh, I'm going back to Twitter again today, not necessarily in the same kind of light, but to look for an example, a learning example that uh, that we can take a look at together and expand upon a little bit here in this video. And so what I'm doing today is I've got, um, and I'll expand my screen here, I've got a Twitter thread from a gentleman named Clint Fiore. And Clint is a business broker located down in Texas. And he's got a few thousand followers on Twitter and uh, put up this thread called 18 ways that business brokers and sellers will overvalue or inflate the asking price of their small business listing for sale. And I read through this and, and really, I think he's got a lot of these things hit dead on. And there's a few things that I would like to add to, but let's go through the list and discuss some of these things um, and and expand a little bit on the conversation because who is Clint speaking to in this Twitter thread? You know, he's talking to all of Twitter, but I've got a I know that I have a lot of business brokers in my audience. And so I wanna I wanna add something here at the end that's particular in particular for people who are business brokers that might have felt at some point or another tempted to do some of the things that Clint is gonna mention in order to make that price go higher. And uh, I think that a lot of you will find that little bit of advice at the end very useful. So first of all, um, reason number one is wait, or, or item number one is waiting. Um, and Clint says probably the most common, most deceptive is waiting the valuation entirely on the most recent best year ever. And we've seen this a lot, particularly in 2021. In fact, um, I did a video just a couple of weeks ago about valuing sudden jumps in revenue and profit uh, driven entirely by this type of question. And so, you know, you see the, the sales increasing and the valuation multiple is applied just to that last year. And if it's not sustainable, then it doesn't make sense. But the fact is we don't really know what's sustainable. We don't have a crystal ball. Um, and the lack of crystal ball is gonna come up here a few times in this, in this list. Um, inappropriate ad backs. So what is an ad back? Well, it's when we have an expense of some nature in a business that the seller doesn't believe will transfer to a new owner. They add it back because they say that's part of the profit. So if a company is paying for a teenage daughter's cell phone, for example, they might add that back and say, this isn't a real business expense. But there are some other things that go on here. And what Clint says is that um, they have to be provable, documented, legal, and on the tax returns. He, you know, itemizes all those things. I don't quite necessarily agree with all that. Uh, what he's talking about 
is that they need to be provable, documented, legal, and on the tax returns in order for a buyer to be able to get a bank loan for the deal. And so just a warning to sellers out there, you know, the more of this sort of funny business that you do, the less likely it is that buyers are going to be able to actually borrow money from a bank to do the deal. If we're talking about material numbers here for these ad backs, but sketchy ad backs, I've seen them a lot as well. Uh, 2B um, is when the sellers and brokers get loosey goosey on them. So he'll say, for example, fuel expense, and it's just an owner ballparking what they feel. And they might say it's like $15,000 of fuel is for their personal vehicle. I've seen this all the time too. I've seen it related to things like fuel, as in Clint's example. I've seen it related to groceries for a restaurant owner. You know, like, like I buy some of my household groceries and put it on the restaurant's bill kind of thing. And you want to watch out for these round ballpark figures. It, it, there has to be some kind of logic or documentation behind it in order for you to agree to that ad back, or you have to manage the risk in the transaction with the deal structure. And, and for those of you who don't understand what I'm talking about, head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com and take the course there because that's largely what I talk about over there. When you get into small businesses, if things start to be a little bit loose, if you, if you can't seem to figure out um, you know, the, what the actual solid numbers is, it may not necessarily be that the business is not a good one to own. It just means that you have to come to be its owner in a different way. And that most likely means that you should not borrow, you know, heavily. You don't want to be 90% bank loan kind of leverage to buy it. Um, inappropriate normalization adjustments. Another variation is large expenses that were one time. So he talks about new paint or fixtures, um, that kind of thing. I agree with that. Um, then there's this next one. I recommend you look hard at these and ask if it truly won't apply to you. So he's talking about replacing something worth 30,000 every 10 years, take a $3,000 a year average. Um, and so if you watch my video, David duels with Warren Buffett over depreciation, we'll put a link to it here. Um, I talk about that extensively about the fact that the cash flow presented to you as a business buyer um, is going to be with depreciation and amortization added back. And if it's SDE, it's got the owner salary added back too. Um, but as Warren Buffett says, fairies and goblins don't pay for your equipment. It has to be taken into account. Um, and then Clint mentions bad debt um, as being a common one. And again, if there's normally bad debt in the business, uh, then you have to take it into account. What, um, what I like to do is if I see bad debt is choppy, if I see it's big in one year and small in other years, um, what I'll do is I'll look at how many customers this business has. So if it's got good customer diversity, um, no concentration issues, if it's got like a thousand customers, each one representing half, you know, at most 1% of the revenue, then I might say, you know what, let's do an estimate that this business is going to experience a half a percent of revenue, bad debt expense on average. And we'll use that in our, in our recasting or, and in our forecasts. So it's got to relate to the industry and different industries will have different rates of bad debt and different businesses will have different levels of bad debt, depending on what they're doing. So for example, a, a building yard uh, might be very strict on credit and never have any bad debt. Um, and another lumber yard might be really aggressive trying to sign up contractors 
um, and get stung from time to time with bad debt as contractors uh, end up going under and things like that. So you look at the individual business, you look at their track record. Generally speaking, if there's bad debt in their history, there's probably going to be bad debt in their future. And um, while it doesn't make sense to add it back unless it really is a one-off thing, it may make sense to smooth it out by creating some kind of average cost per year of what the bad debt should likely be. Um, rent adjustments or lack of rent adjustments. Uh, yeah, this is a big one. So if the, uh, and, and he talks about 4B down here about uh, businesses that own their own real estate. Um, if a business, if a corporation owns its own building, then there's not gonna be rent on the income statement or P&L, right? And so in order to properly evaluate the business, you have to separate the business from the building. And that means putting in what's called an imputed rent expense. Now, sometimes if the landlord is arm's length, what he's getting to in, in the first part of number four is that any new business owner might be asked to sign a new lease with the landlord and there may be an increase in rent. And so we need to factor that in. You need to take that increased rent and look at how it would have affected the prior years. Item number five, too high of a multiple. So he says many brokers choose the 75th percentile or a way above median multiple to hit the asking price number that the seller wants. So what is he talking about? He's talking about looking at comparable business transactions. So uh, people in the industry have access to databases. I subscribe to three of them where you can go and look for other businesses that have sold. And I see this problem too, where brokers will take a, a range of records from these databases and they'll simply average them uh, or they'll, they'll cherry pick. And, uh, and he mentions that later on as well. Um, and so what's the problem with that? The problem is, is that the information got into those databases from brokers. And if you just look at the average on the surface, you're basically trusting that the person that created the data and put it in there um, was competent and qualified, which they may not have been. Um, I've actually made a video about this a few years ago about the problem with looking at transaction data. Um, what I do when I'm working on a file to evaluate someone's business is I look at each record one by one and I look at the numbers in that record and I look at any underlying data that might be available and I try to understand why that made sense for the buyer. And if there's something off about it, if it just doesn't make sense, like if you have a relatively um, small business sell for a really high multiplier, why was that? Maybe there was a strategic acquisition um, reason for the buyer to pay that higher multiple. So likely the buyer wasn't a financial buyer. They weren't someone that was borrowing and had to make a cash flowing deal for themselves. And so the whole scenario just doesn't make sense. And I'll throw that one out. Or in the case of a very low uh, cash flow business, you might end up with a high multiplier because the business ends up selling on, a, on the value of its assets. And you might say, hey, look, here's a coffee shop that sold for seven times SDE. Well, they can do that if the SDE of the business is one seventh of what the equipment is worth, right? That can happen. And so you have to look at each one of these uh, records and you have to decide, does this make sense or not? And sometimes you end up throwing out a lot of them before you end up with a, a series of data points that are actually applicable. Um, 
And then he goes 5B, higher multiple can be justified if compared to its industry peers, it's got more recurring revenue, higher margins, higher growth rate, or some special advantage that will convey to you. And I, and I would agree to that. And these special advantages and the outperformance against the peers can often be discovered through the transaction data. So if you find that the average multiplier is a certain level and the average uh, sale price to revenue is another level, and when you apply it to your subject business, if that multiple of cash flow gives you a higher result than the factor of revenue, it indicates that that subject business is outperforming its peers because they, they managed to earn more profit from the same level of revenue. If the business were perfectly average in its performance, those two calculations would give you the same result. <clears throat> uh, number six, <clears throat> applying EBITDA multiples to what's really SDE. So I see this all the time, all the time. And I see it done by people like accountants too. So people will go to an accountant and say, I need, a, uh, you, know, I need you to help me value my business. Someone will go out there, they'll find a news article or some bit of information on the internet that's publicly available. So I'm not talking about these private databases that I've subscribed to. They'll go out there and they'll find something that says, businesses like this sell for five times EBITDA. Then they'll come back, they'll do a normalization of their business, and then they'll come down to SDE, which is EBITDA plus the owner's salary. And so they're then they're going to apply the EBITDA multiplier they learned from the news piece or the magazine or whatever. And they apply it to that SDE number and they totally overinflate what the business is really worth, especially with the smaller businesses. So, um, and, and here's the thing is there's really not a lot out there apart from a tiny corner of the internet, things like my YouTube channel, where we actually talk about SDE multipliers. Almost all of the conversation out there in the world, in the news and the press, et cetera, is about these mid-market businesses and they're always talking about EBITDA. And so this is where people pick up on these bits of information. But if you apply the wrong multiplier to the wrong number, then obviously you end up with the wrong result. And yes, there are business brokers that make this mistake as well, just like Clint's pointing out here. Um, not accounting for rising interest rates. So what he's talking about here is sometimes a broker will model out the return on investment or debt coverage ratio uh, to justify the asking price. Um, and quite honestly, I don't see a lot of people doing this. Um, I think it's important to do. I think that a, and we'll get to this as I get into my comments for brokers, but it's important for the selling side to understand what the position of the buying side is going to be. And lately, everyone I'm talking to is being told by bankers that they're only being offered floating rate interest loans, like on SBA loans in the US, for example. And that's because interest rates are going up, right? Bankers aren't dumb. They, they know that rates are going up. They want to make sure that their rate that they charge you is going to increase over time as it, as it goes up for them, their costs are going to go up. And so figuring out um, how rising interest rates might affect a business are really important. Uh, number eight, valuing projections, pro formas, discounted cash flow approaches. Okay, so what he's talking about is forward-looking methodologies. And I've talked about this as well, about why you cannot look to the future when looking at a small business. And here's the reason why. 
when you analyze a publicly traded stock like Coca-Cola and you buy the shares, not only are you buying what happened in the past, but the entire management and leadership team that is steering that ship and helping it move towards its targets in the futures, in the future, it stays with you with your investment. And so you're investing in the company and all of its people. When you buy a small business, the leadership, guidance, direction, et cetera, usually departs. So the seller is the one running it largely in the smaller businesses. And that person leaves and you step in. So why would you value the business based on what you're going to do with it? And that was, of course, one of the big topics about the other video that I made about the Twitter feed about buying a business to grow it. It just doesn't make sense. You buy a business and you pay based on what you're getting today, not on what you're going to do with it. That might give you the motivation to buy, but you're not going to pay for what you're going to do. Um, and so what about any kind of forward-looking uh, valuation? Well, I'm recording this in June, 2022. So if I'm analyzing a business today for someone, uh, for a buyer or a seller, and they've got the 2021 financials done for December 31st, and they give me a year-to-date internally prepared statement showing what they're what they've done in the first half of 2022, and then I'll ask for like a year-over-year -year 21 versus 22 for the first six months, if they show me they're heading on track to performing a little bit differently in 2022, maybe 4% higher sales or something like that, then I'll create a 2022 Poro Forma and I may put some weight on it, but it's not a guess. It's based on 50% of the year already being done, right? And so we have a really reasonable set of information as to why that one year forecast is going to make sense. But I would never put any weighting on 23, 24, 25, 26, etc. 8B, um, usually business brokers value based on historical financials. So often when I see this as a seller's well-meaning CPA or investment banker or MBA friend, you know, giving them this idea that they should be looking at the future. Um, I would agree with that. Um, especially if someone goes to an accountant who only spends their time preparing tax returns or financial statements and says, how do I value my business? And the accountant grabs a book from when they were in university that talks about business valuation and it's about mid-market stuff. That's often how these forward-looking uh, methodologies get introduced to business owners. Um, owner adjustment of their labor. So SDE is for one owner that works full-time. So in this case, Clint points out that if an owner works 70 hours a week, then you need to put in another expense for an additional person who's gonna work that difference, the extra 30 hours, and most people won't do this. Um, the other corollary to this, he points out in number 10, is that if there are more than one owner working in the business, again, SDE is one full-time owner operator, not multiple partners. I see this all the time with married couples and things, and the broker will add back everyone's salary saying that, oh, they own the business, I get to add it back. But without adding in a commensurate expense for someone to replace them for that work. Um, the opposite side of that is family members working for free or cheap or not being paid. And so I've seen this too, even in little small family corner stores and stuff like that, where, you know, they're selling sandwiches or something like that. And the mother-in-law is making them and they don't pay her, but you know, she lives with the family kind of thing and she wants to help out. Well, if I buy the store, their mother-in-law isn't going to continue to make free sandwiches for the store. So it's got to be taken care of. 
cost of goods cold cost of goods sold shenanigans number 12 here um and he re references the supply chain being upset um and he asks are you still going to be able to get the same stuff at the same price and that's a great question and it's something that you have to analyze in due diligence um and so if you discover for example that costs have gone up the next question is is there the price flexibility to increase the prices to eat that inflation uh, expense growth may or may not be available to you. Depends on whether or not the product you're selling is a luxury you need or whether it can be easily substituted, et cetera. There's a lot of questions that have to be answered. Um, I'll give you a, a quick example that we can surmise by looking at one market versus another. A couple of years ago, the whole debate about minimum wage was going on pretty wildly. A lot of places were demanding, you know, a $15 an hour minimum wage. And what's interesting is that you can actually look at other countries that have gone through that same episode decades ago, right? And so I was talking with a guy in Australia who lives in a city that is about the same size as my city. And at the time of our conversation, my city had seven McDonald's locations and his city had one. So in his city, you know, if you wanted to go have lunch at McDonald's, it was like a $15 or $16 affair. And in my city, if you want to have lunch at McDonald's at the time, it was like a $7 thing, right? And so what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that as their labor costs go up, they have to charge more to make money, but not everyone accepts the price. So even with the same size of population, in that Australian example, their city could only support one McDonald's location because there are fewer people willing to pay that higher price for the McDonald's lunch versus my city when the price is half as much, there's seven times more people that are willing to step up and do that transaction. And so that's what I mean about are there substitutions? Is there the flexibility as far as supply and demand is what people are willing to pay? These are all things that you have to look at when you're looking at a particular industry. And there are pieces of data out there and research that you can look at to see how certain industries perform in recessions. This isn't, you know, number one, we don't know for sure that we're going into a recession. Number two, it's not the first one we've been through. Other recessions have existed. You can certainly find articles, news pieces, et cetera, particularly within industry and association publications that talk about how downtimes or inflationary times can affect certain businesses. Dust off, you know, your books from the 1970s. It could be very valuable here in the next little while. Um, number 13, other seller advantages that don't convey. These are hard to detect from the presentation. Most common is seller's personal goodwill that can't convey to you. For example, they're president of an association for 30 years and get referred heavily because of that position and you won't have it. Um, yeah, I've made videos about this before. Uh, we call that personal goodwill versus business goodwill. Where does the goodwill reside? And if it resides in the individual, there are ways to structure the deal to, to better be able to take over that goodwill. Um, exclusions from the asset list. Um, and he's talking here about asset sales as most deals go down as, as asset sales. Look at what's excluded and make sure there's nothing on there that might directly or indirectly help the business make money. Um, and he uses the example of a race car. I've seen race cars, sailboats, uh, recreational properties, all kinds of things in a business before. And uh, a lot of times it's easy to say, you know what? 
It's, it's just a personal thing hidden in the business for tax reasons, but maybe not. So some of these things might be worth looking into. Um, last year victory lap. This is an important one. When you see a hockey stick up in earnings. So again, we're talking about the last year being the best performance. You want to make sure it's sustainable. So if they knew they were going to sell, if they knew they were going to sell, maybe they did things differently in this last year. Maybe they deferred maintenance. They didn't repaint the equipment they usually repaint every year. Um, all this kind of stuff that they did whatever they could to make this year look great. What does that mean for you? It means that the maintenance expense might be going up in the year that you own it because you have to catch up on stuff that hasn't been done. Number 16, stimmies. And he talks about uh, American government programs here, PPP, EIDL, you know, the Employee Retention Tax Credit. And they can appear in different places in the financial statements, and it may or may not be entirely transparent how they're appearing. So one of the new modules that was added into Business Buyer Advantage, um, there was a COVID module, a recession module with a COVID section that was added. And then a few months ago, I went back and added a COVID follow-up section where I detailed all the different types of stimulus and advantage programs that have been laid out. And some of the ones that are hardest to find are not where a business received money from a government, but where governments made changes to reduce expenses for businesses. So I'll give you an example. Um, here in my town, um, if restaurants want to occupy sidewalk space in the summertime, um, then they can do that, but they have to move the sidewalk out in, and sometimes it's into paid metered parking places. And so when they do that, they actually have to pay the city the amount of revenue that the parking meter would have generated for the whole summer. So X amount per hour times eight hours per day times what a hundred days over the summer or whatever it is. And they have to write that check to the city in 2020 the city suspended that requirement to help those restaurants. So what does that mean? It means that you're not looking for a stimulus that came into the business. You're looking for the absence of a regular expense, which can be much harder to discover, but it's important. It's important to know. Um, the next one here, number 17, cherry picking comparables, especially in smaller niche industries with a lot of comps. If a broker uses comps for their multiple range, then removing some of the lower ones or leaving a crazy high one in can really skew the range. And that just gets back to what I was talking about earlier about looking at each piece of data. Honestly, if I see a bunch of data, especially if there's only a few records like Clint refers to, and it just doesn't make sense. If we're talking about smaller businesses with these really high multiples, then, then I just go back to some more fundamental methodologies of looking at um, the business, looking at the characteristics of the business and trying to determine what other kind of industry is that business analogous to. And you can usually figure it out. Like businesses will have certain characteristics and you can say, you know what, that has a lot in common with this other industry. Then you go look at the comps over there and you might find that they are more in alignment with what you might expect. And so again, this whole evaluation of a business and what Clint's talking about is how sellers or brokers overinflate the asking prices. Um, it again, it comes back to this idea of what are we going to set the expectation as, right? What the business really sells for is a function of a market transaction. You need a buyer willing to pay, right? You need a buyer 
who's willing to say, this makes sense. You need a buyer who's willing to say, I understand what the cash flow is. This is what the debt service will be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to do the deal. And, and that's got to be there in order for that piece of transaction data to appear. But we don't understand all the motivations behind those other buyers that may have created those bits of transaction data. Um, number 18, not accounting for CapEx. Uh, this gets right back to that Warren Buffett video that I, that I mentioned earlier that I made. Um, and he says, I hope this was helpful. Um, he says, please follow me at Clint Fiore. And if, you're, if you like the conversation about buying and selling businesses, and you probably want to follow Clint. Uh, there's another one here, bonus normal inventory. And so he's putting in here that normal inventory not included in the asking price when it should be. This is a huge one. I would say that there's more specific conversation about this. Again, over in Business Buyer Advantage, uh, the new module that was put in there about share sales has sections. A lot of that module is about the net normal position in working capital. And so this item about normal inventory uh, really depends on the industry and it depends on industry norms and the fungibility and financeability of inventory. And so I, this is the one thing I would disagree with him on. It's not that normal inventory needs to be included. It's the norm, the normal net position in working capital that needs to be included as part of the asking price. Now, what, what spin do I want to give on all of this? Well, here, let me go back to full screen. Well, Clint is talking about this from a broker's point of view because he's a business broker. And when a business broker meets with a business owner about selling their business and the business owner says, you know what? I like you. I, I think that I can work with you. You know, what can you sell my business for? The broker goes away and they prepare something to try to figure out what the business could be sold for. And then many of them will fall victim to some of the things that Clint has just highlighted here. And it will bring them back to the seller with this number that is higher than normal. So what is happening in the psyche of the business broker in order them, for them to fall susceptible to these kinds of things, right? What is it that they're looking for? And I have done valuations for brokers before because they've got a listing opportunity and they're like, I don't want to miss out on this one. I want to, I want to really show the seller that I can figure this out and I can do well, et cetera. And I'll do the valuation and I'm getting paid for it. I don't care what the outcome is. Like, I don't care if he gets the listing. I don't care if the business ever sells, right? And so I have this level of detachment because I'm just charging a fee for doing the evaluation. And so a lot of the times when this happens, I'll come back with a number and they'll say, oh, you know, but here's a reason and here's a reason and here's a reason why it should be more. And I'll say, well, you know, those are reasons why people might want to buy it. But based on the information, based on the track record, this is what I think the most probable selling price is. And maybe the asking price needs to be a little bit more. There's always a negotiation. As we saw from a few weeks ago in my IBBA Q1 2020 report video, um, businesses do not sell for their asking prices. They sell for some portion, usually below their asking price. And so there needs to be a wiggle room there. But at the heart of it, the broker is trying to get a higher number out there because they want to secure the contract to sell the business. They want the listing. And so 
what is it that change causes someone to change their behavior because they want something? There's a word for that. We call it being needy, right? And we've all met needy people, people who are over eager to impress you, people who are over eager to try to make a sale, people who are over eager to get you into this car before the end of the month because I have to hit my commission target, right? And how does it make us feel when someone's needy? It makes it, makes it kind of creepy, right? And you're like, you can detect it. People can detect it. What is it that you want from me? You're trying to get something from me? I can feel that you're trying to get something from me. Well, in all my different sales jobs before I was doing this, we used to call it talking with commission breath, where you're so eager to make the sale that you're just like pushing, 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 applying pressure. You're saying different things. And even the most interested and qualified buyer is going to back away and be like, there's something weird going on here. They can just feel it right? So brokers are doing these things to try to goose up the number as high as possible because they want to get the listing. And in doing so, they miss the whole point of their business function, okay? The purpose of a business broker is to facilitate the transaction. And so if you're a business broker listening to me today, this is how I want you to start thinking. Think about yourself like you're running a candy store, so in the candy store, you've got different kinds of sweet treats. In order for you to make a living, you have to find a supplier of sweet treats at the right price so that you can apply your markup, call the markup your commission, and for the ultimate price that it's sold for to be attractive to who? The buyer, right? So a business broker who's talking to a business seller needs to be coming at it from the point of view of inventory. I need to show this person, the seller, what this business is really going to sell for because I need him to be willing to accept a reasonable offer so that we can actually get this deal done. And when, when sellers get their expectations skewed by a needy broker who does all of these things that Clint mentioned to try to boost up the price of the business, what ends up happening is this, is they overprice the business and then the buyers come along or maybe they don't. And they, they might make an offer that's reasonable. Or if, if a buyer comes along who's an uninformed buyer who doesn't understand this thing and makes an offer, let's say they make a full price offer. Well, by the time they get to the bank, the banker is going to demonstrate to them why it doesn't work, right? And so the deal won't go through. And so I've seen many overpriced businesses languish on the market, buyers come and go, and then eventually the broker's like, all right, well, we got to lower the price, Right where if the proper price had, be, had been set in the first place, the business would have been sold. People don't sell good, profitable, small businesses to cash out. The multiples are just too low. People sell good, profitable, small businesses when one of five situations arises. Burnout, fatigue, boredom is number one. Then we have divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, and retirement. Only one of those five things is planned for. The other four happen because life. Okay. And so when somebody says, you know what, I need to move on to the next chapter in my life. One of these things has happened to me. I'm disinterested or I'm getting divorced. I've been told some bad news by a doctor. They go and they're like, who can I sell this business to? That's always the first question they ask. Who can I sell this business to? And if they can't figure that out on their own, then they're going to open up the door to brokers. They meet with the broker. We're not actually talking about, except in the case of retirement, 
we're not actually talking about going out and trying to do a fair market transaction. What we're talking about is an expedient changing of hands. What we're talking about is someone who needs to move on. They need to move to the next chapter in their life. And so there is a level of compulsion and motivation on the part of the seller. Brokers, pay attention to this. If someone's willing to talk to you about selling their business, it's because they want to sell or they need to sell. And so it's on you to properly set the expectation so that you bring the business to market at a reasonable price. And then you will instantly get interest from a range of buyers who will want to do a deal. Right. And this is the key critical thing is to remove the neediness. And, and why is there so much neediness out there? It's because it's a tough business. Business brokerage is a tough business. There are brokers who get into it attracted by the high commission rates, what they perceive to be high commission rates because they compare it with things like real estate. Uh, and then they work and work and work and they might work for a year, get a couple of listings, not even do a deal in their first year. Right. And so at a certain point, people get a level of desperation. There, that's not a pathway to success here. The pathway to success is to only take on listings you know you can sell. And the number one thing that's gonna prevent a listing from selling is that it's priced all out of whack. And so those brokers I mentioned where I do the evaluation for them, I've told them many times, if the seller won't agree to why you think the asking price is what, what it should be, or what you're proposing, you don't want that seller anyway, because you're just gonna spin your wheels for a year and nothing's ever gonna happen. And you're never gonna close the deal and you're never gonna earn the commission. You're just gonna waste time, energy, fuel, other dollars, right? You're just gonna waste your efforts on something that isn't gonna end up being sold. The seller's expectations have to be properly prepared from the get-go because if they're motivated, they need a transaction to happen. They want to be able to have the business listed for sale and they want it to sell in short order. In that Q1 2022 uh, report video that I made where we talked about the IBBA report, in that report, it talked about the length of time from engagement into sale. And they were talking like six, seven, nine months, right? There are businesses that have been on the market for years. That's an example of those brokers properly managing expectations so that there's a realistic time frame as far as finding a buyer and selling it. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the video this week, guys. Um, uh, Twitter is a great source of inspiration, information, and sometimes uh, funny things. Um, I wanna have a big shout out to Clint for sharing that thread that we used today as the basis for this conversation. And um, we'll see you around. Talk to you soon. Keep the questions coming, guys. Um, as always, I'm reliant upon you guys to make comments and send in questions in order to create the content for this video. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and the online courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go out to Jeff Alpaw Customs for being my tailor. Men all around the world can look dangerous, just like me, with the help of Jeff Alpaw Customs. 
jeffalpod.com. Use the code DCB10 to save. They handle multiple currencies and ship anywhere you happen to be.